Like me, you probably come to this show each week with the mindset of how to become a more effective leader yourself. But today's guest is a former nuclear submarine commander and has a different message for us. And that message is, it's not about you. On today's episode, how to turn followers into leaders. This is Coaching for Leaders, episode 241. Produced by Innovate Learning, maximizing human potential. Greetings to you from Orange County, California. This is Coaching for Leaders, and I'm your host, Dave Stahoviak. Leaders aren't born, they're made. And this weekly show will give you access to the best thinkers, resources, and actions to develop your leadership skills. And not only do we have the best thinkers on the show, but we also have folks who have taken real practical action to put practical leadership in a place and produce great results, not only for the organization, but for the people involved in the organization. And today's guest is just a fabulous example of that. He's got a great story. And the story is not just about organizational results, but it's a story about people and what great things people have done. And I first came across David Marquet from one of our mastermind members who's used a number of David's principles in order to lead his organization. And David was a captain in the United States Navy of the submarine USS Santa Fe. And at the time he assumed command, it was the worst performing submarine in the fleet. Under his leadership, it achieved the highest retention and operational standards in the Navy. When Stephen Covey, the author of The Seven Habits of Highly Effective People, spent time aboard the ship, he called it the most empowering organization he'd ever seen. David has since retired from the Navy and is the best-selling author of Turn the Ship Around, and Fortune Magazine called it the number one must-read business book of the year. David, I'm really fascinated by your story, and and from the very beginning, you weren't even supposed to be the captain of the Santa Fe, right? That's right. So sometimes the things that come along unexpectedly are sometimes the best things that happen to you. Yeah, it's really interesting how, how things work that way. And I'm, I'm wondering if you can take me back now to that time right before you assumed command of the Santa Fe. And what was your career like in the Navy leading <laughs> up to that and that time of preparing to be a captain? I was in the Naval Academy. I was doing well in the submarine force. I was being promoted. I had been selected to be the captain of a, a nuclear submarine, which of course was a huge deal for me personally, because this was sort of what I aspired to. And the leadership model that I adhered to up to this point was basically what we were taught, which is good leaders give good orders, great leaders give great orders. So I was assigned to be the captain of another ship. I went to school for 12 months, which is what the Navy does. So you learn every detail of the ship to allow you to be these no all tell all leaders. And at the very last minute, the captain on the Santa Fe quit a year early. He was supposed to be there for another year. And so the Navy says, well, we can't have a submarine, no, no captain. And he quit because the ship wasn't doing well at the bottom of the fleet in terms of retention, morale, and performance. And to his credit, he recognized, you know, I'm just, I'm not helping this situation. I'm going to get out of the way. And so the Navy said, well, Marquet, you're going to the Santa Fe instead of the of his other ship at the very very last minute is two weeks to go oh wow and so i had so i had two weeks to prepare you know i had 12 months normally you get ready in 12 months and i had two weeks and oh by the way 
the Santa Fe was a different kind of submarine. It has one of the newest submarines in the fleet, and all the equipment was different. Had a different reactor plant. Had you know different weapons. So it was all different. And that was the really the scariest part. And I go down on board the very first time. I'm looking at the gear, and it's like all you know Greek to me. But still, you know, the crew wanted to be told what to do, and I wanted to tell them what to do. So we're sort of in this unhappy but scary place. And very early on, I gave I gave an order which couldn't be followed because it's just the technical design of the ship. It was like shifting into fifth gear on a car with four gears. But the officer actually ordered it. And uh, when I asked him, I said, you know, why did you do that? Did you, did you know? He said, yeah, I knew. I said, well, why did you do it? Because you told me to. And that really, it really started me thinking about everything that I thought about leadership. And I now, like where I live now is that great leaders don't give orders. You know, good leaders give good orders, but great leaders don't give any orders because I built a team that doesn't need to be told what to do. And I kind of went down this path of telling my guys, you know, I'm, I got to stop telling you what to do. My instinct was to have it be out there. Hey, you guys need to take take more initiative. You guys need to have more empowerment. You guys need to be more proactive. And finally, someone shined the light back on my face and said, well, Captain, it's really you. You need to be quiet. I said, and I realized this was right. Too many times leaders think the problem is out there as opposed to in their own heads. Mm. And so what I could do was keep my mouth shut. And I'm telling you, that's hard. You know, when you think you know the answer and you guys come up to you and say, hey, what should we do here? And you want to say, well, turn left and or, you know, update the software or, you know, boom, then, you you know, stuff is happening, man, that feels good. But I would say, well, what do you think? What should we do? What if I weren't here? Well, you know, uh, what do you intend to do? And we, and we, and we practice changing the words we use that we said, I intend to, uh, instead of request permission, we basically, we, we outlawed the words request permission. Yeah, it was really interesting to me from your story as I read through it is, I mean, if there's any place in leadership where you think about being more command and control, it would be the captain of a nuclear-powered submarine of issuing orders. And so what was so interesting to me is you basically stopped giving orders, and you made this distinction between, I can't remember if you did this publicly or you're just in your own thinking of, authority, who has authority versus who in, who has information? Tell me more about that. Yeah, so the thing about not giving orders, that was a public agreement that we made. And because we didn't know, I was, I was going to go down this path, which I didn't really know where we'd end up. And I needed the crew to agree that that's what they wanted to do. What happened, Dave, was there was a lot of mess. There was a lot of chaos. There was a lot of trying stuff. There was a lot of success. There were some failures, uh, but in the end, we had great success. And not only for the ship and and what what happened while we were there, but in the long run, over the next ten and fifteen years, creating more leaders. And so when I sat down to write the book, I, was, I had to like think, well, what did we actually do? And I went back and interviewed the crew. And so a lot of the stuff that you read in the book is really it's after the fact architecture that's laid in to, to what we did. And this idea of information and authority was one of them. So you can think about most organizations, the guys at the front line, right? The coders, the front desk at the hotel, the waiter standing at the table, uh, the salesman standing in the office, the, the people at the front line have the information, but they don't have the authority. So they have to go back you know, up the chain, fill up a form to get permission to do something. And so there's a gap between information and authority. 
This is the typical approach. And what we said was, you know, we're going to push the authority down to where the information is. So when I got to the ship, the second in command had to sign the vacation form. So the sailors were routing their forms up to the second in command. This is what Navy regulations tells you to do. It's there's six levels, right? And so there's a gap between who has the information, the supervisors who are the immediate supervisors of the sailors, and then the authority, which rests at the top. And so we channel information to authority. We do it using uh, computer programs, forms, uh, stoplight charts, and that kind of thing. And uh, we decided that to do the opposite. Rather than trying to push information to authority, we would push the information or we would push the authority for making decisions down to the guys who naturally had the information. And this is a little bit scary, but it ended up being super powerful because now those guys actually had authority. They had a responsibility. They were involved. They had to, their brains had to kick into gear. And we talk about engagement and there's all this stuff about, you know, you, you know, do the following 17 things and of engaged employees. You only need to do one thing for engaged employees. Give them decision-making authority. Everything else is window dressing. Mm, oh, fabulous. I saw you online on a video and a talk you had given to, it looked like a military audience, and you were talking about this process you went through of, of really giving authority to the folks who had the information. And, and, and you mentioned in that talk that, that was not, not only is that a big change for the organization, that was a change for you that you, you like giving orders, <laughs> you know, yeah, you like yeah. that control. And so I'm just curious, like, what did you, what did you do for yourself? Where did you struggle with this? And what did you ultimately do for yourself as a leader to get beyond this, this framework that, like you said, you'd, you'd learned for years and years. Right. So this is, this is not a decision that you, you know, it's like quitting smoking. Like you don't say, Oh, today I'm, you quit. <clears throat> It's like every day you got to make the decision not to give orders. And so there's a couple things you can do because when everything's fine and everything's, you know, going along well and smooth sailing, then it's easy to say, oh, hey, what do you guys think? And, you know, this is on you. You guys tell me, you know, if you had to make this decision, what would you do? But it's when times get tough and the stress happens that we go back into our limbic system, we go back into our old ways, we just want to park orders. And so there's a couple things. Number one, you got to give people permission to give you feedback and tell you when you're falling back into that role. And so, you know, I gave my guys permission to tell me when I was not living up to the kind of leadership behavior that I wanted to. Now, I'll tell you, the first couple of times, but, you, it, you know, you're under stress. That's why you're acting badly. And then they say, Kevin, you're acting badly. And you don't want to hear that. Yeah. <laughs> you want to know what stress does to people? Watch, you know, watch the clips on the Super Bowl and see how Cam Newton responds, right? There was nothing physically wrong. The guy's a fabulous athlete, but it's all in his head, right? They got to him. He has stress. And then you know, he's flopping on the ground like a toddler pouting at the, uh, the thing afterwards. That's all because of the stress that's happened to him. And so, Cam, you need someone to tell you, hey, you know, you're going down this path, you're going down in the basement, and you need someone to throw like a, like a behavior red card at you and, and snap you out of it. So you got to give permission, people permission around you to give you feedback. It's a key thing. You got to be overt and public about this is what I'm trying to do. I'm going to struggle with it. And I need you to help me. 
and I need you to tell me, you know, in a polite and respectful way, hey, uh, I'm not living up to it, or you know, this, I'm I'm barking orders again. Oh, and I'm I'm imagining that, especially the first couple of times that someone has the courage to do that, how you respond as a leader in those first few interactions, the first few times publicly, really does make a difference and set a tone for the organization. Yeah, right. I mean, the first time you not, you chew someone's head off because they're they're telling telling you, hey, you're you know you you just you're telling us what to do here, you're not giving us a chance to think. It's gonna be the last time to do that. So, you know, the biggest enemy is always you. I, I also had a poster which tried to remind me that you just really need to be consistent. And, and as a leader, often it would feel like, God, I've said this a hundred times, yeah, and I would get frustrated. For example, I would tell my guys, uh, if you want to, you know, in the Navy, there's this, uh, a very elaborate qualification program. And, and uh, if you want to stand a watch or go to higher levels of responsibility, there's a whole process. You take a test and all this stuff. And, but there were also rules that said things like you needed to be like five years in the Navy before you could reach this level. And I told my guys, uh, and I had the authority to, to waive those requirements as a captain. I said, look, if you're ready in all respects, I don't care how much time you had in the Navy. I will waive that. Okay, I'm not going to be the guy who holds you up. You are. And I swear to God, I was there for a year and I've been saying, singing a song for a year. And then I heard these guys in the passageway. Well, you know, they won't let you do that. First of all, I used the word they, which which is was a no-no also. We, we use the word we. They won't let you do that because you don't have five years in the Navy. And I was I just like, uh, I blew up. But from your perspective, leaders, you may be saying it 50 times, but don't forget, there's like new people coming in the organization. And these old habits, man, they die hard. So um, I had a poster which had just like six, eight, had eight frames of me telling my dog to sit, 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 and the dog's standing. And finally, <laughs> the ninth, ninth, ninth frame, it's, the dog is sitting. And the idea was, you know, you got to go through all eight frames, man. Yeah, that's it's it's so funny you mentioned this because it's one of the things I hear from leaders a lot is uh, I I keep saying the same thing I keep saying the same thing and people aren't getting it and we'll have a conversation about well how many times have you actually had that conversation oh you know I sent an yeah. email and then I sent made a phone call I'm like you're not anywhere close <laughs> to going through those eight or nine steps um, and yeah. I, I was really interested in how you framed and your team framed just language on the ship. And one of the phrases that it sounds like was really central to the language that was used on the ship was the phrase, I intend to. I was wondering if you could yeah. tell us more about, about how that came about and how you got, how you got your team doing that. Right. So go, let's go back to the story. So I give the order, right? You can't do it. We, I make a deal. I'm not going to give you guys any more orders. Wait, 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 hang and on so, just a second here. So you, you gave an order the second day you were on the ship to do something that the ship physically couldn't do, right? It was it was the first day we were underway, which was about two weeks after I got there. But yes. And and so we made this deal that I wasn't going to give them any more orders. Well, you can't replace something with nothing, right? And so there was like, well, what do we, you know, what do we say? How do, how's it going to work? And so I just, and, and, the, and the words that we were used to use would be, Generally, that was like request permission to, or worse, hey, here's a problem. What do you want me to do? You know, stuff like that. But, you know, generally, it was kind of like request permission. That was the general sort of way we worked. And I said, replace request permission, re do, you know, global replace all with 
I intend to, because I needed to give them words to say. I didn't have, you know, we were at sea. The reactor was shut down. We were submerged on the Pacific. You know, we didn't have time for a change management process, right? And so the guys go back to work and they start saying, I intend to. And initially, you know, it kind of half felt like it was they were living it, but their psychological ownership goes to the person who says, you know, I intend to do this. And if you don't say no, I'm doing it, mm. right? And the organization moves forward. So, so now in my company, people say, Captain, you know, that, well, Captain, sorry. <laughs> they, 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 they don't know if they call me Captain. Yeah, on, on the no, days I they really like you, they call you Captain, right? <laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah. They, they, I got a couple of guys on the ship who are working for me and they'd like to call me Captain. But anyway, David, I intend to give a discount to this client. I intend to, you know, whatever it is. And if I'm on an airplane, if I don't check my email for that 24 hours, whatever it is, it happens, right? They're not sitting there waiting for permission. That's the big difference. Mm. Like it happens. So it was hugely powerful. And so I became convinced uh, to ignore all the sort of mumbo jumbo about trying to convince people to think a different way or any of that stuff. I just try, I just said, we're going to change our language. We're going to say, and, and another one was, you know, we're going to say, I intend to, instead of request permission. Another one was, I said, we're going to say, we, we had all these days on the Santa Fe, like engineering was they ops supply, you know, the chiefs were they to the officers, you know, so there's hierarchy day and there's organizational day, stovepipe day. So they just have to say we, mm. and what happened was we started, we felt like a team. We felt uh, people would say it was the most powerful sense culture of teamwork they'd ever seen had nothing to do with anything we did other than just say, we're going to say the word we, because what happened was we changed our wiring in our brains. When you say we, you can't like blame the guy over in marketing. <laughs> it's like, we didn't prepare for the meeting. Like, it's no blame. You just move forward. Yeah, everyone's in it together. And you literally are on a ship, of course, and, and, and really in organizations, too, in almost every case. And see, so you all went through this process of doing this. And like you said, you know, it started off at, you know, it didn't maybe didn't feel as genuine as you began it. But you went from this place where, you know, you're, you're underway for the first time and you give an order that, that people couldn't follow and, and people just repeat the order and don't say anything yeah. to, I was interested in the story you told later on in your command of the SEAL team and how you, you guys were meeting the SEAL team and how it, how that it, it, it rolled out very differently than it was when that, that first day you guys were underway. Right. So this is when I, I knew that we'd really had gotten over the hill. And uh, we, so the ship is on the surface. It's the middle of the night, you know, no moon, very dark. And we're picking up the SEAL team that's coming off the coast in a Zodiac. And we're not, you don't communicate with the radio because that gives your position away. I mean, anyone can intercept it. And uh, so it's all happening basically in the blind. They're going to an X in the ocean. We're going to the X in the ocean. Now I got a nuclear submarine, right? So if they don't show up, I'm still going to live but they're going to be stranded in the middle of the ocean in the Zodiac. <laughs> right. So it's important that we're, be, we're in the right place. So, so what happened was we ended up in water that was a little bit shallower than we expected. And so we set a tripwire. And I went running into the control room when the tripwire got set. And I glanced up at the screen, and it looked like we were, uh, and we were moving towards shallower water, which is you know consistent 
with with hitting his tripwire. And the officer of the deck, so this is the guy who's actually giving the orders to drive the ship, has ordered the ship to move ahead slowly. And as look at this arrow, and it looks like that he's going to drive us more into shallow water. And I kind of blurt out, no, we need to back up. And immediately when this younger crewman says, no, Captain, you're wrong. And I stopped, I kept my mouth shut, and I looked at the screen. And um, very quickly, the, the little arrow got short and stopped and reversed and went in the other direction. In other words, the submarine was actually pointed toward deep water, but we were being pushed backwards. But in the confusion of running into the control room, I felt I thought that we were pointed toward the shallower water. And so what they had done was exactly right. But the, but the point was, without hesitation, they immediately spoke up and were able to say, no, you're wrong. You know, if they had done what I had said, we would have been out of position because sure enough, a few minutes later, the SEAL team showed up and uh, we were right where we needed to be. One of the things that I think is really fascinating that I've heard you say is that you don't see the performance measures of what you did on the ship and, you know, best in the Navy and all the things that, that, that are, are talked about, about your experience nearly as impressive as what the people on the ship went on to do later. And the distinction I've heard you make is that you could get to those good performance measures by still using a command and control approach. And I was really interested in that, David, because I was was extremely fortunate early on in my career that uh, an organization I worked with had the rule that one of the performance measures of how good a leader you were was what happened to a location you were managing after you left. And they would look at the three to four months after you left your management position of how that how that yeah. place performed. And so it was fascinating to me that you zeroed in on that, too, of what happened after you left the ship. Tell us more about that. Well, that's really super powerful. And I'm glad your organization did that. I get people tell me all the time, I want my people to think long term. And I said, OK, fine. Give them an evaluation. I do exactly that. Evaluate them on their location six months or a year after they leave. Oh, that's not fair. They're not there. I said, well, you want them, while they're there, they'll should be thinking about how to, I call it embedding whatever greatness they have in the people and the practices and the processes of the, of the system rather than keeping it in their own personality. And we all know the leader, and we saw this in the Navy a lot, right? Some guy's there, somebody's doing great. He leaves, somebody starts doing poorly. And we say, oh, you know, gee, we really much we really miss Jack. Jack's such a great leader. And I was like, no, yeah, Jack was a great achiever. He's a great submarine, submarine driver, but he wasn't a leader because had he been a leader, the ship would have continued to do well. And so I didn't write the book until 10 years after I left because I didn't realize the story because yeah, you had this turnaround, but you know, we see those books all the time on the shelf. And, uh, but what happened was we ended up creating 10, uh, submarine commanders from my one, from the crew that was served with me. And it took time for that to happen. And for me to realize that, and I said, you know, that's really the story. So we're going to use the turnaround as the hook, but the real story is by doing this, by treating people like leaders, you build more leaders. It's a long-term thing. And a lot of guys don't have the patience for it. A lot of organizations are hung up in quarterly earnings or, you know, whatever they have, they can't tolerate the patience to build leaders. Well, and, and just so the significance of that isn't lost for people who aren't as familiar with how the Navy works is 
Uh, I mean, to get a command of a Navy ship is a, is a big deal. And how many officers on a submarine? There's only like 14 or 15, right? That's right. Yeah. We had, so, so 10 of them officers. went on to, to, to take yeah. their own command. That's, that's amazing. Yeah. I think you know, the average is about two and a half. So to have 10 is really a highly disproportionate number. It's really way, way outside of the outlier. David, one of the things we've talked around in this conversation is the necessity for a leader to really be, if not maybe enthusiastic, at least willing to give up control. And mm-hmm. and that is a that's a that's a big obstacle for a lot of us. I know it's an obstacle for me. You've talked about how it's an obstacle for you. So I, I want, one of the things I, I'd love to know from you is what are some of the strategies, regardless of if it's commanding a ship, running a business, managing a nonprofit. And I think a lot of people buy into this and they say, okay, that makes sense. I want to I want to push authority down to the people who've got the information. But how do we get over ourselves? What are some of the things we can do to just get get give up control a little bit? Well, the good news is you carry the same brain with you all day long. So you can train it. So the training that you do will carry over into work. The concept is called act your way to new thinking, not think your way to new action. So the idea is you do something that rewires your brain. Like for us, like saying, we, here's one. Next time you go out to dinner, tell the waiter or the waitress, hey, you pick for me and don't play it safe. And then see what you get. Now, if you don't eat uh, beef, fine. You can put restrictions on and say, I don't eat beef, but on that, you pick my meal for me. And a lot of people, you know, that's going to bring up anxiety and well, what are you, you know, it's just dinner, right? <laughs> you guys you'll survive. And, and if it's no good, go home and, you know, make a bowl of soup. But it's great. And it's really interesting what happens is interesting what happens in, in, with the wait staff. You know, I tried doing this a lot and we see a whole range of reactions. And these are the same reactions you're going to get at work. If that seems too easy, then just amp it up. Just, you know, let, let your spouse pick the restaurant or pick the show or pick your next car. I mean, there are all kinds of ways. Every time you got to make a decision in your personal life, if you can practice giving up control there, the same uh, sort of feelings of anxiety are going to happen at work. The, The only thing is you'll know you're on the right track. You go, Oh, this is how it's supposed to feel. This is how it's supposed to feel. Right. I'm not sure that it ever feels, quote, good, but at least you know you're on the right track. I love that way of thinking of it. You take your brain everywhere with you. So if you get comfortable or at least more comfortable in one place, that 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 same sort of orientation can migrate everywhere else. I mean, it's, it's, it's obvious in some ways, but just the act of mm-hmm. doing it makes it so much different. Right. We're really enthusiastic about this idea of acting our, your way to new thinking, uh, you know, and the same thing with the team. There's some, there's a lot of work now that shows that you you know, you, your brain controls your physical body, but your physical body also can rewire your, your brain. We call them nudges and people can sign up for them, but you can come up with activities to be, let's say you want to be more collaborative or more empathetic. Uh, you can come up with activities that will train your brain to, to, to be that way. 
I, I love it. I love it. So we've got the you've got the book, Turn the Ship Around, but you mentioned just a moment ago the nudges, and this is something that I was really captivated by when I went on your website. I was wondering if you could just say a little bit more about those and, and, and that as a starting point for starting to do some of these things we've talked about and, and how would be the best way for people to engage with that. Yes, we put these nudges out. You can enroll in them. You have the opportunity to enroll. They're little one-minute videos. Typically, it's me. And I give little tips for generally how to give up control or just talking about one of these concepts, push authority to information, not information to authority. Be a know-all but tell-not leader, not a know-all, tell-all leader. And uh, you go to my website, davidmarquet.com, and uh, right there on the homepage, there's a little sign-up form, and, and you enroll, and we, um, we send them to you every Wednesday morning. David Marquet is the author of the book, Turn the Ship Around, and former captain of the USS Santa Fe. David, thanks a ton for not only what you did during your time in the Navy, but just as importantly, the leadership lessons you're sharing with people today. And I I know it's been so helpful to so many, and I hope folks will check out your work. Cheers. Thanks, Dave. Thanks for having me on your show. The interview you just heard was recorded about a month ago, and I'm recording this now as it's airing the same week. And in the intervening time, I was really intrigued by this concept of going out to a restaurant and giving up control of what you're going to eat. And so I decided I would try that a few times. And I can remember on three occasions doing this where I let go of control in some way. Two of the times, I just said to the server, surprise me. And uh, what ended up happening in in both of the first two situations is we ended up getting served. In one case, I was with someone else. Uh, we were ordering, sharing a plate. Uh, it, it, we ended up getting the most safe thing on the menu. <laughs> it's the best way I could describe it. It was one of, something I'd probably order anyway, and I'm sure it was one of the most popular dishes. And uh, in both cases, I got the sense that the server was playing it safe and didn't want to potentially upset me by not having a good meal, even though that was what I was asking for. So I thought, I thought that was really interesting of how we all tend to play it safe, even on the opposite side too. And on the third occasion, though, that I did this, it was something really, really interesting happened. So I was having lunch with a buddy of mine, Ryan Williams, and he's going to be on the show actually in a couple months. And we met up in LA and he suggested a couple of places because we were meeting closer to him. And his first suggestion on his email to me was a sushi place. Now, I know, I know I'm supposed to love sushi living in Southern California. That's supposed to be the hip, cool thing to do. It's just, it's just not a thing for me. I'm not a big sushi fan. I've done it a couple of times. I just, I just don't love it. And so, but that was the first thing on his list. He said, let's, let's go here. But if you don't like sushi, you can go here. And I emailed him back and I was thinking about this interview and I said, all right, Let's go to do sushi. I'm not a huge fan of sushi, but that's exactly why we should go do it. And so we went and he ordered for me and it was great. Complete giving up control, right? And so we had the meal and it was all right. It it was better than I expected, actually. Uh, And so, but what was really interesting is we sat at the sushi bar and we sat down and the, the guy sitting next to us, we struck up a conversation. We started talking and Ryan has a podcast too. So we started talking about podcasting and media and it and, uh, turns out he teaches. And so we were ta- he was talking about how he might bring 
podcasting into his classroom and use media more effectively. And so we had a really nice conversation. Super nice guy. And we talked for 10 or 15 minutes and he got up and left. He had someone else with him. And Ryan turned to me and he said, do you know who that is? And I I said, "Um, no. (laughs) Well, Ryan told me. And it turns out, I looked him up later, uh, he's an Academy Award nominated director. Just had sitting at lunch and had a 10 or 15 minute chat with him. Super nice guy. And I was thinking about that walking out of the restaurant that day that I ended up in a situation having a conversation with someone who's you know really well known in a field that I would never have normally had if I had just stuck with the control that I normally like to have. Don't think I didn't see that Chipotle going into the shopping center and the sushi place, by the way, too. I was looking at it. But it was so fun to get to do something totally outside my comfort zone. I wonder if you would try the same. Maybe it's at a restaurant or maybe there's another place that you can let go of a little bit of control this week and just see what happens. See what kind of conversations you have. See what people come back to you with. And if you do and you find something interesting that happens, I'd love to hear about it. Drop us a line. Coachingforleaders.com slash 241 is the notes for this episode. By the way, always love to get your comments, questions, or feedback for the next Q&A shows. That's at coachingforleaders.com slash feedback, and we'll consider your question for a future show. Now, if you aren't already subscribed to get my weekly leadership guides on Wednesdays, you want to do that because you'll get the notes for the episode each week in your inbox on Wednesday. It's got the photo of the guest, a quote, it's got the link to the show notes, and it also has a whole bunch of things that I think will be helpful for you to listen to, to watch, to read. So each week you get a list of those things in your box, all comes in one message. If you haven't already joined the Leadership Guide, it's a great way to keep up on your reading and your listening and your development between shows. And if you haven't yet yet joined that, go over to coachingforleaders.com slash subscribe. And when you do, you'll also get access to my reader's guide that lists the 10 leadership books that will help you to get better results from others. It's an 11-page guide and a nine-minute video overviewing all of those books. So again, you can get that at coachingforleaders.com slash subscribe. If you haven't already jumped onto that, do that so you get the weekly leadership guides. I'd love to include you as well. Finally, this week, thank you so much to Melissa down in Australia. Thank you for the kind review on iTunes. Uh, Melissa mentioned she really enjoyed the conversation a few episodes ago with Michael Bungay-Stanier, one of the top coaches in the world, and also a fellow Australian. So (laughs) greetings to you, Melissa, and all of our listeners in Australia. We actually have so many listeners in Australia, and uh, thank you for all of you who listen. I'm so grateful. Hey, I hope you found today's conversation helpful. Go out this week and find something you can do to turn followers into leaders. Have a great week, and I look forward to talking with you on next week's episode. Take care.